I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. All those of you who've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Welcome to the Swing 2020. In the most uncertain year in modern history, the only predictable thing about American politics is the unpredictable. This election is no horse race. Crisis management is on the ballot. It's the incumbent Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden vying for the White House. But this isn't just a vote for Commander-in-Chief. It's state houses, rural congressional districts, powerful governor's mansions, and bellwether Senate seats. It's prosecutors, sheriffs, and superintendents. And the results will reveal the pulse of the American people. The swing, searching for the heartbeat of a nation, is counting us down to November 3rd. Here are your hosts, Chris Baccia and Emmanuel Berbari. Still 90 days to go until Election Day 2020. This is The Swing 2020, the podcast where we are breaking down swing states and swing voters in pursuit of understanding how November 3rd, 2020 will shake out the general election between Donald Trump, the president of the United States, and of course his challenger, the former vice president, Joe Biden. I'm Chris Baccia. He's Emmanuel Barbari. We're with you here on The Swing for A second episode last week, we were 100 days out. Now it's 10 days later. We'll be talking to you every week and a half about the race. 90 days remaining until Election Day. Emmanuel, this week we have sort of large structural conversation about the race and where each of these candidates is going to look as far as the themes of their campaigns. But I think more pressing is that Joe Biden, the vice president, is in the middle of a very important week in his decision-making process for who will be his vice presidential running mate. And Chris, when you look at the process, the timetable of this entire selection, we're expecting it late July, early August, now creeping later into the month of August, and now it just seems like they're going to roll it out closer to the convention. And I think that is the right move. It creates more splash. It creates more buzz around a convention that really isn't going to have the same buzz as it would have in a normal year in the virtual setting and whatnot. So there are some very intriguing candidates. We know Joe Biden committed to picking a woman from the outset, broke the news back in the March debate, and now it's just a matter of narrowing that list. And Chris, Not sure who's at the top of your trust tree, but there are some very, very intriguing candidates. And right now, it seems like they're casting a pretty wide net. Let's give you an idea of those candidates, because I I think you, you can really break down the timing of the vice president's selection for who will be his own vice presidential running mate a lot. But then when you dive into the list of names that are very public at this point, um, it's not that the campaign hasn't done much to say, no, we're not looking at these women. And there seems to be a pretty solid 13 women who are in the race for vice president for at least uh, the nomination for vice president. And this has sort of been a, a 
a, a public thing for a while. I, I would point to Stacey Abrams as being the first person to almost declare herself as a vice presidential <laughs> candidate. And she did that a long time ago, seemingly um, during the presidential race, maybe a full year ago. And it's been like a three month long process for her, a campaign <laughs> process. For the rest of these, you get the sense just reading all of the insight on the vice presidential candidacies. They're going under the radar. They are yeah. attacking certain names under the radar, shoving some dirt to the Biden campaign. Here's why you should pick me. Here's why you shouldn't pick my opponent. But for Stacey Abrams, it's been CBS, CNN. It's been all these major <laughs> networks saying, you know, I'm the person to get this job done. And there's no doubt that Stacey Abrams is a is a incredibly effective political messenger and, and, and you know, clearly a star of the Democratic Party, but the highest office she's held is state legislator in in the state of Georgia, and she has no national government experience. Of course, I think the most prominent name in, in this race, if you will, and, and normally it's not a race, but that's Kamala Harris, the United States Senator from the state of California, um, and she um, seems to be a can't-miss candidate. If there's one knock against her, um, it is that she took on Joe Biden in the primary for president. She probably dealt him his most humiliating blow in the primary, which was to point out that he has a spotty record um, on racial justice, that he served with segregationists in the Senate whom he would have considered himself to be um, allies in the United States Senate um, back when he served. Of course, he served now, we're talking about more than four decades ago in the chamber. She's relatively new to the Senate chamber, and she's a fresh face, and she doesn't have any Obama holdover qualities, which I think benefits her next to the ultimate Obama holdover, which is Joe Biden, of course, his vice president. And Kamala Harris, you know, I think I think one of the things you can say about her, Emmanuel, is that if that's her only knock, and, and we'll talk about some of the other candidates here, I don't know that it's such a bad knock, because she seems to be pointing out something that is true about the vice president. She seems to be pointing out something um, that is worth mentioning, that has merit, and his picking her is sort of an olive branch to a part of the party um, and and this is what vice presidential selections oftentimes are. You're talking about you're talking about building the coalition within the Democratic Party. Forget about potential Trump voters. This is about shoring up the party. And she may have pointed to the thing that makes the party most unsure about Joe Biden. So in that sense, perhaps it's a very smart pick. Perhaps it's something of an admission on the part of Joe Biden. I, I think, Emmanuel, there's a way where they can politically swing this to make it a strong pick. And it's a unique vice presidential process for a variety of reasons, many of which you hit on, Chris. But I think the top two priorities here when you're looking at this election process is, number one, is this person going to bring the ticket down? Because last week we were breaking down the polling, and that has not changed 10 days later. Now, 90 days out, Joe Biden is still in the driver's seat in this race. Will this pick hurt the ticket? If it doesn't hurt the ticket... You're good to go. You're scot-free. You're going to cruise to the finish line. The other thing to consider here is Joe Biden would be the oldest president ever to assume office for a first term. 78 years old and plenty of the news outlets focusing on whether he is cognitively fit at this stage to serve as president. So this person is the transition into the future of the Democratic Party. That's what Kamala Harris represents. Is that what someone like Susan Rice represents, who's a former 
Obama administration national security advisor who's never held public office? Is she that future presidential candidate? Does she bring down the ticket? And I think that's something you hit on, Chris. I think that's something that will really separate someone like Kamala Harris at the end of the day. Not hurting the ticket, ready to serve as president. And I think Susan Rice is an interesting an interesting candidate here. She never ran for an office, and, and that's something that could potentially hurt the ticket. So I agree. When it comes to a safety element, Kamala Harris, she's a politician's politician. She knows how to run for office. She's done it a number of times. She did it in California, um, and she, she did it for national office in California. And unlike Susan Rice, who has entanglements, if you will, with the Obama administration that could potentially hurt um, the ticket, I, I think you make an excellent point there. And and when you talk about the youth factor, which Harris brings, Senator Harris, a Senator Warren doesn't bring that kind of youth, although she could be looked at as an olive branch to a part of the party that Joe Biden certainly doesn't represent. That's the progressive fighter in her. And just to look at some of the other names here, Karen Bass, who's the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, she's a name that has really um, be- stepped into the limelight, I think, in the last week or so in this search. But there are some things about her record um, that might scare Democrats or might scare people in the middle of the country who are likely to vote for a Joe Biden. And then I think there's a Keisha Lance Bottoms. She's another woman of color as is Karen Bass and Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams, who we mentioned. Keisha Lance Bottoms has done an excellent job as the mayor of Atlanta during the coronavirus pandemic, during police brutality and and protesting in her own city. So she brings some some of this local government, um, a local a local government experience that I think the Democratic electorate has taken some interest in recently. And finally, I'll, I'll mention Tammy Duckworth, United States Senator um, from Illinois. I, I think she's a very, very, very um, interesting candidate. And I, I think Joe Biden um, could could get a boost from her because she is um, very articulate, very um, and her her issue portfolio is particularly interesting. I mean, she she basically built her political career in veterans affairs. She's a veteran of the Iraq war. Um, and, and I think that record is 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 so appealing to a certain type of voter um, that maybe that's a smart Joe Biden pick. So these are some names that are we're looking at. I, I think, Emmanuel, we're going to have an answer on this by the next time that we speak, which will be our 80 day podcast. So just to give the, the listeners a preview, these are the names. They're interesting names. Uh, I'm curious. I, I know you like Val Demings as well from Florida. I do. Which of these names? rise to the top for you and i'm sure by the time the next time we speak we'll have a definitive person to break down for the listeners so i think there's a difference between what maybe should happen and what will happen i've long thought the ticket would end up being biden harris i'm going to stick by that because the steam has not wavered off in any way shape or form over the course of the last year and a half so that's what i think will happen and i think she's the one that alienates the least people you also need to think Most people say voters don't vote for a vice presidential selection. This year is different. So how do you keep those independents? How do you keep those swing voters we've been talking about so much? How do you keep the people in the middle knowing that this person could very well be president in two, three, four years? You never know when they could step in to that role. So I think it will be Kamala Harris. I like Val Demings because she's not only experienced in a police department in a turbulent time like this and is well respected 
in that role, moved up to Congress in a crucial swing state, and is very respected in that swing state. What she lacks, though, just like many of the candidates we just mentioned, as opposed to Harris, is the national profile. And someone who you're comfortable with on day one, if she had to be president, could she do it? Would she be, would she have that pull? That's That remains to be seen for a lot of these candidates. And Val Demings, another woman of color, uh, a black woman from Florida. And, uh, and certainly these factors of identity are important when we talk about candidates for national office, candidates for the vice presidency, where a woman has never served, where um, an African-American person has never served. So these things are important to the Biden campaign. He's emphasized them um, from a very early point when when it was looking like he was trending toward the nomination, that he was going to nominate a woman. He wants his government to reflect uh, the American people, demographically at least, and certainly symbolic um, potentially for a lot of progressives going to the polls. But again, the next time that we meet, I believe that uh, we will have uh, someone that we can really dive into. But we want to switch gears toward sort of our marquee conversation for the podcast, and that is to look at the two presidential campaigns. Of course, that is uh, what the Swing 2020 is all about. We're looking at Trump and we're looking at Biden, as uh, the intro would reflect from uh, Nick DeLuca, um, our good friend who voiced that introduction for us. And Emmanuel, Trump, Biden, there are other developments in the race in the last week. Trump... He's teasing what could be an election day meltdown, to be very frank with you, which is that he is casting serious doubt over mail-in voter, uh, mail-in ballots. And he's looking at Nevada and threatening lawsuits. His campaign manager is talking about um, moving debates up. So there is a large um, conversation to be had about the vote itself in 2020. On the other side, uh, if you look at the Democratic side, I think Barack Obama endorsing 118 candidates for uh, Senate, House, uh, some legislators in there is very interesting. So those are some of the developments in the race. But as far as broad thematic strokes of this election, um, I think you're seeing the Trump campaign really try to lean into the law and order Um idea here he's he's pointed to portland uh, in a lot of ways um you know thematically emmanuel what do you see as you could start with trump or biden it's up to you so when we're looking at the trump campaign you're really seeing that pivot towards law and order and i think that's something you've witnessed through action and not only words sending federal troops into the nation's cities and cities that he was very much willing to neglect and see burned down during the initial stages of the Black Lives Matter protests because he wanted to expose how poorly run they were. Now he's pivoted towards, again, I'm your law and order president, just like he said in 2016. Will this resonate in the polls? I I really don't know because you're looking at a completely different look of the suburbs than you did in 1972 when Richard Nixon ran successfully on this platform. In 1972, the suburbs were 90% white. Now they're 65% white. People are much more empathetic, and the polls would indicate they're very, very empathetic with this movement, and they want to see progress and change made. So I think that's why shouting law and order may not be as effective as it once was. Can it win him re-election? Sure, it, it is going to be a tight race, many people project. But I think it's a much different philosophy now than it would have been 25, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago, 
Now, another thing you're looking at with the Trump campaign is the economy message. Built the greatest economy, best person to build it back. Will it be the great recovery, as he refers to it as? And also, dealing with China and dealing strongly with China. Basically, not touting the pandemic recovery as much as, this is what caused the pandemic, and I'm tough on them. I would say Biden in every regard, and you can get into this a little bit more, Chris, everything opposite of what I just said. Yeah, and I think these three points are big. Law and order, China, economy, I would say you could sum it up there as far as what the president is promoting. But so much of, and I would argue probably the lion's share of the president's political success has has been his ability to attack his opponent. It hasn't been on promoting his own thoughtful, coherent agenda. And and I don't mean that as a knock. I mean that to say that he has never been much a fan of details. He has never been much a fan of policy specifics. We know this. Uh, This is the political reality. He was even asked in a Sean Hannity interview, what is your agenda for a second term? And he didn't answer the question directly. He he, he pivoted to attacking Biden. So to your point... It's much more about that than it is about himself. And and that was true in the Republican primary for president in 2016, where he was effective because he managed to make everyone else on that stage look impotent next to him. I mean, he made Jeb Bush look impotent. He made he made Marco Rubio look impotent and he made he made Ted Cruz look um, the same. I would use the same word impotent. And that that word will maybe be something he'll try to tag on Joe Biden. But Here's here's where it's different between Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, who he was able to I wouldn't I, I would say he he. It would be hard to describe how he cast her, but there's something resembling uh, evil in there. There's something resembling corrupt, untrust, corrupt, untrustworthy, to the point of being, um, you know, un-American, if you will. And Chris, and s- some of that distrust was already there entering 2016. It's not like the entire electorate trusted a Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden, no, of course. if you look back to 2016, was trusted. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. So so that's the difference here. That's why the... And you saw the campaign change its strategy from Sleepy Joe to Corrupt Joe about three weeks ago to try to paint that, to try to frame the candidate in a certain way. It really hasn't moved the needle yet. Right, and that's that's where I'm going with the, the Biden thing because... Uh, the Biden versus Clinton thing because... I think it, it I think with with and this is something that the democratic establishment was aware of and and they knew it in 2016 of course Joe Biden opted not to run for president in that cycle and and he cited the death of his son Bo Biden um you know the the thing the thing is that Joe Biden is running the safest possible campaign you've heard it called the basement campaign right and that that, that that's also an accurate political assessment I think um and that is actually that actually is the most proactive if this makes any sense type of campaign that he can run because to run a poor campaign against Donald Trump is to run anything um that might stick your neck out and Joe Biden saying virtually nothing controversial allows Donald Trump to have very little ammo against him and that may be how you beat him i, I think this has been you know there's no doubt that political um analysts have been thinking about how it's done and they may have thought about Joe Biden who doesn't have a lot of firepower in him and that might be precisely why 
he is a good nominee for president. And the words that I have written down for Joe Biden, um, and, and one of them is his own, is soul, restoring the soul of the nation. That was what he opened his Democratic campaign for president. Of course, he had to win a very crowded primary field on that moderate message, and he did, which tells you the pulse of the Democratic Party. I, I know that there are Democrats, of course, the loudest Democrats in the room, the most progressive Democrats in the room, think that Joe Biden is not progressive enough, but he absolutely crushed that primary. I mean, there, there's no question that he definitively and decisively won it. So restoring the soul of America... Even if progressives don't find that to reach far enough, they don't find that to be specific enough about progressive goals, well, the better part of the Democratic Party just isn't there, isn't with them. They want to take down Donald Trump. The second word, Emmanuel, that I have written down, and this is not something that the Biden campaign really wants to say out loud, but it's the implicit thing that they're running on, is normalcy. They're running on normalcy and restoring uh, and reinstalling normalcy into American government and Certainly a lot of people will take issue with that, but there are a lot of Americans who just want to take the temperature down on our politics. And I think that is part of the Joe Biden pitch. Two areas Hillary Clinton lost out big on demographically in 2016. Suburban woman, high school educated whites, both moving back into the Biden camp. You mentioned the firepower. It's different. It's a different type of firepower because you're not going to find the Joe Biden fan out there, like you found the Hillary Clinton fan who was ready to run through a wall for the candidate. But based on the primary turnout, the Democratic Party knows what it's doing, first of all. They knew they needed to push a moderate candidate across the finish line to take on Donald Trump. They were also very motivated in the sense that they're going to go to the polls to vote against Donald Trump. And I know a lot of people will say you're not going to win an election based on that. But I think there's enough of a mix between the mundaneness of the campaign that Biden is running and the motivation of the Democratic Party and not making those waves and eking his way through the debates, which will be the key, that could get him across the finish line. It's very realistic. And, you know, I I think the thing that the the asset for Joe Biden has always been his his humanness and the quality about him that even Lindsey Graham, um, a Republican and a, and a loyalist to Donald Trump, will will vouch for, will advocate for, is the is the heart of Joe Biden, and and it's something that that there are plenty of internet clips I'll tell you that that will sh- will show you the guy's heart, and it's very important. Um, but then let's talk about his weaknesses because. His weaknesses are are very um, they're very real. He pronounced. he does pronounced. He he doesn't present um, the sort of readiness and and the sort of energy for the job um, that I think voters are searching for. We saw the other day he walked up to a press conference at his campaign headquarters and he said the wrong place, a place that was down the road. You see all these gaffes consistently. His mind seems half in it, half out of it. Again, it's not fair to speculate. What, what could be going on with his age. I, I just think it's fair to speculate how he's doing as a campaigner. And, and he's clearly not all energized, not all there in terms of a presidential campaign at this point. You see the gaffes. They happen daily, weekly, whenever he's put in front of a camera. The thing that's working for his campaign right now, and the thing we've often cited is, it's not sticking. People expect the gaffes, and they're willing to live with them. They're willing to live with the candidate, his track record, and 
what he represents. And I think that's what you're seeing in the polls right now. And, you know, if if competence is what's on the ballot, then I think you have a really interesting um, election because Joe Biden is is not running on competence. Uh, I mean, he's running on it, but I don't know that he can effectively I don't know that he can effectively make that pitch. But then can Donald Trump make the competence pitch? Probably not, because if you look at where the country is as relates to the coronavirus pandemic, which we haven't even mentioned in this podcast yet, it would be hard to run on competence if you're the president, too, because the the American government um, has failed in comparison to in in comparison to other nations around the world. Um, If the election becomes about something more sentimental, if you will, something something related to the morality of the candidates, the character of of the candidates, which is certainly how Joe Biden would like to frame this race, um, then, you know, I, I, I think I, I would I would believe that Joe Biden uh, will be the winner of this presidential election if that is what voters go out to. Trump Trump knows that people voting on who's the best man, who's who's the highest quality individual um, is not going to win him the White House. He may be able to win on the law and order fear, fear tactics that we mentioned. He may be able to win on holding China accountable um, for essentially fudging their numbers on the coronavirus, not being transparent with the international community about the coronavirus pandemic, which originated in China. And as you mentioned, Emmanuel, earlier, he's going to run on a strong economic message, um, the idea that he'll be able to revert the economy to where it was, and, and and specifically the stock market, I think that being very important, um, and the stock market continues to at least chug along right now. Um, But we know what the real economy in the United States is, um, and we know that the stock market chugging along is being driven by basically its 10 companies. Um, It's 10 strong tech companies and a few others um, that are allowing, you know, and that that are representing that, that bottom line as not as bad as the true economic suffering in America. So both of these candidates will look at economy. Um, Trump will look at law and order in China. And Biden, as we mentioned, is going to look at soul and normalcy. And I also believe uh, he's going to look at racial equality. And, and, and that's something, if we could tie everything in a bow, that might bring us back to the vice presidential pick. If he brings a Kamala Harris who has been um, on the front lines of, of social justice in her political career, um, or a Karen Bass, who's of course chairs the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, these are picks that can really um, solidify a message about equality that I also think um, is very key to the Biden campaign. Should be very interesting how it unfolds and how the race shapes as these candidates. I I can't say get more defined in the case of Trump. I can say it in the case of Biden. Whether that continues to unfold in the next couple of months and. We shall see. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how these candidates frame everything. And the one dangerous thing we know about Donald Trump as a campaigner, he controls the the media message. And I don't mean that in the sense that he controls the media. He controls what comes out of their mouth when he tweets, when he when he says something and he, and he makes headlines because he can make his own headlines. The other day, tweeting about delaying the election, that became the story as opposed to the most disastrous jobs report in multiple decades that had come out that very day. Instead, it was, does the presidential office have the power to delay an election? 
even though we all know it does not. So he can control the narrative. His Twitter following, his, his digital ad campaign in 2016 was off the charts. We will see whether that moves the needle. But it's time for downtime. Down ballot races every week here on The Swing. This week, primaries in Michigan, Kansas, Missouri. Chris, take it away. Let's start in Missouri, where a progressive challenger has unseated a 20-year incumbent in a Democratic primary for the state's St. Louis-based congressional district. You'll remember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others in 2018 and Jamal Bowman just this June dislodging establishment Democrats as part of the Democrats' leftward lurch. The latest is Cori Bush defeating William Clay Sr., That's official as of only last evening. Like Ocasio-Cortez and Bowman, Bush is backed by the Justice Democrats. She entered the political radar as a nurse-turned-Black Lives Matter activist after the slaying of Michael Brown in 2014. Bush, who challenged Lacey in 2018 but lost, defeated the incumbent this time around by four points and is almost certain to be on her way to Washington come January. Another victory for progressive Democrats coming in Michigan. Rashida Tlaib fended off her moderate primary challenger, Brenda Jones, in a rematch from 2018 in which Tlaib prevailed by only 900 votes. In 2020, as of this afternoon, she's done so by more than 35,000 votes. Moving to the GOP, party establishment releasing a sigh of relief today as a moderate nominee emerges from Kansas's Senate Republican primary. That's Congressman Roger Marshall, who is now poised to fill retiring Senator Pat Roberts' seat in the upper chamber. Marshall overcame the challenge of conservative Chris Kobach, an immigration hardliner who was Kansas's Republican nominee for governor in 2018. Kobach lost that race to Democrat Laura Kelly, and Republicans feared he could hand a Senate seat to Democrats for the first time in 88 years. Marshall, the moderate, though, secured victory by 14 points last night. And that is downtime. Chris, great stuff. Very intriguing to follow. And just as a teaser for what's next on the Swing 2020, we're going to monitor very closely that vice presidential race in addition to any major developments that happen. And if we're looking even further off, an exclusively devoted mail-in balloting episode already seeing some major developments in a state like Nevada that will continue to be the case in the weeks and months to come. And we want to explain to you what this potential... November 3rd doomsday scenario might look like, as some have called it, if the president calls into question the integrity of election results, what happens? And that might be a a good deal of speculation, but we want to bring to you some of the the legal expertise um, and the research that we found on the subject. And we also are going to continue to look at data on the podcast and look at which states are trending in which color code and basically look at 13 or 15, maybe 16 states that really count in the 2020 election for president. And of course, we'll always have our downtime segment for you. Thanks for listening to this episode 90 days out. Next week, we will meet 80 days out, and we believe that we will have two people on each side um, of this election, meaning full tickets, top and bottom on both sides um, as Joe Biden looks to circle in on a vice presidential running mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Swing 2020, 90 days out. 
Next week will be 10 days uh, closer to that election with Emmanuel Barbari. I'm Chris Bocchett. Thanks so much for joining us.